right. Hey, welcome to day 38 of our journey through Scripture. Today we are finishing the book of Job. So Job chapter 40, verse 3 through chapter 42. And then Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 46. Okay, let's begin in Job. Um, so uh, chapter 40 begins with the Lord finishing up his first speech, which we covered yesterday. Um, and then Job has a brief answer to the Lord, two verses. Uh, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Um, this is uh, Job basically realizing that, okay, now that God is speaking, I really have nothing to say. I really have no challenge to this. I have no challenge to God because of who he is, this this realistic vision of who he is. Um, that he owes me no explanation. Um, he has told us how he is just and how he is right, how, and and that is, that is enough um, because he is so much further above us. He is so much greater in knowledge and wisdom in what he does that we really are no in in no position to, to, to question God's motives, why he does the things that he does. Um, and it's not just a matter of, of how dare you, it's a, it's a matter of our limited human knowledge. Um, we know virtually nothing about how and why God does the things he does. And so who are we to bring some kind of case against him by some observed slight, even when the slight is big. And I think that's significant about the book of Job, right? It isn't that he just made Job stub his toe or something trivial, right? Job has suffered the kind of loss that um, that rivals any person's loss. Um, and yet this is still the case. And so that that's how, how thorough of a quote-unquote, response to the question of suffering the book of Job is. So, uh, verse 6, uh, the Lord once again speaks out of the whirlwind to Job, and um, and the basic idea of what he says is summarized well in verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? So, you're so willing to justify yourself that you would Deign to uh, to impugn God's motives, to impugn His justice. Um, why? So that so that you can be shown to be right and blameless. Um, and then he he challenges him. He he says, "Go ahead, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and you know, put the wicked to put the wicked down." Um, uh, everybody who is godless and and unjust, okay, do that, and then verse fourteen, I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So again, God just saying, look, Job, uh, there really you really need to just trust me because there's you really have nothing to say until you can understand these. Uh, amazing inner workings of the universe and of my justice. How can you 
how can you impugn my motives when you know so little? Um, then we have this uh, discourse in the rest of the chapter, uh, verse 15 on, about behemoth. Um, just so you know, behemah is the Hebrew word for beast. And so this is some kind of beast it's talking about. And this is one of the places, like Leviathan, that sometimes... Uh, certain Christians of a particular uh, persuasion on the age of the earth will um, say, look, here we have dinosaurs in the Bible, uh, because you've got this one who eats grass, and he's got strength, and look at his muscles, uh, his, his tail is stiff like a cedar, his sinews and his thighs are knit together, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bar of, of bars of iron. And to those, to some, that sounds like he's talking about like a brontosaurus or something like that. Um, and frankly, I don't see how this holds any water at all. Um, I don't see how there's, uh, you know, the suggestion has been, for example, that God is here describing something like a hippopotamus, um, which was known in the ancient Near East, and uh, and. The idea is, well, his tail is stiff like a cedar. What what animal's tail is stiff like a cedar? It must have been a brontosaurus. It can only be a brontosaurus. But it's not talking about the size and the width and the and the power of his tail. It's talking about the stiffness of it. Um, so, not not to say that hippopotami have uh, these extraordinarily strong tails or like they're known for their strong tails or something. But I'm just saying that. Uh, I don't know if this really vindicates the dinosaur interpretation, just that it's, you know, an animal, we're not sure what it is, uh, but God is basically saying, you know, I, I have sovereignty over this beast that you have no hope in taming. And then in verse 41, he kind of continues to do the same thing, and here he does it with our friend Leviathan, and we've seen, he's mentioned several times already, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, several times in the Psalms, 74, verse 14, 104, verse 26, as well as Isaiah 27, 1. Um, and I've mentioned that this is a mythological creature um, whom God um, is attributed as having defeated, as this kind of like symbolic representation of his subduing of the uh, very most dangerous parts of creation, oftentimes that would be the sea, this untamable deep. Um, and verse 41 is basically just this, this extended discourse on how God defeats and tames Leviathan, and uh, with, with the, culmination, the culmination basically being, who is this then who thinks he can stand before me? Uh, verse 10. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. That's verse 11. Uh, so the point is similar there. Then we get to chapter 42, which is Job's final answer to the Lord. And his answer is this, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this? And then he quotes God, right? Who is this that hides knowledge without, who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful, which I did not know. And then again, quoting God, here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. So Job is musing on the things that God has told him. And then I think we get 
kind of the point of the book of Job in verses 5 and 6. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, so think about that for a minute. Um, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now, Job was a man who did honor God. He did know God in, in some sense. But the idea here is that his knowledge was almost secondhand, right? You've told me this about yourself. You've, um, I've, I've learned this based on writings or teaching or however it is I've come to the knowledge of God. But now my eye sees you, which of course is not literal, right? But the idea is, is that my perception of you after this whole ordeal is so much greater. Uh, after we've mused for so long, for so many chapters on your nature, your justice, my wrongdoing, etc., 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 I can say that through this messy struggle that I would wish on no one, now I perceive you better, and it is worth it to see God, to see you, to see a loving Father whom I'm called upon to trust not to question, not to shake my fist at, not to impugn uh, so that I might exonerate myself, but so that I might worship you and know you. And so he, he returns to the state in which, he once, in which he was at first before his friends started speaking. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Um... So the point here, or at least one of the big points, is the way in which suffering shapes our mind and our connection to God. That that is a worthwhile thing, that God cares about our holiness, about our finding our joy and our satisfaction in him. And, uh, and there's a sense in which that happens in the context of suffering and enduring pain, in which it does not in cozy couches and simply reading books or, hey, let's be honest, listening to a podcast. And um, that's, a, in essence, the lesson that Job learns here. Um, the, then, as further part of the epilogue, God then rebukes uh, Eliphaz as well as the other two friends. Notice Two friends are mentioned, as I as I noted when Elihu started speaking. Elihu is not mentioned here, and it's not exactly clear why. One explanation is that Elihu's words, as I said before, Elihu's words are true and just and right. Uh, but, of course, the counter to that is that a lot of what he says does sound very similar. So the, the idea would be that although he boasted about bringing something new, he only really ended up bringing out trodden and well-worn paths. Um, uh, but yeah, so uh, that would be the counter-argument. So my my personal stance on whether or not Elihu is uh, is vindicated and, and, and correct in what he says uh, is kind of a question mark. I could see it going both ways. And if I really wanted to make the case that Elihu did speak what was right, I would note that he's not mentioned here. Uh, but then the other side of me says, well, that, that's not necessarily definitive. Um, 
And so that's where we're at. As with other things in biblical interpretation, there's a question mark there. Um, any, but at any rate, God tells his friends, look, go ahead and bring a sacrifice. And Job, who is redeemed and righteous in my eyes, will pray for you. And I will listen to him on your behalf. So God considers himself wronged because of some of the stuff that his friends had been saying. And they did so, and the Lord accepted them. Uh, Finally, we see how the Lord restores Job's fortune. Note that the quantities of animals here are exactly double of what we found when we first saw Job in chapter 1. Uh, The number of children is uh, equaled. He receives seven more sons, three daughters. Uh, God bless his wife. That's now 20 kids. Um, And he lives to a ripe old age and dies full, uh, old and full of days. Um, This, of course, is a little bit of a jarring ending, right? Because one of the things that the book of Job has done is challenged the idea, the, the, the mechanistic view of God. Uh, and his justice. And um, if any book in the Bible tells us that things will not always end up hunky-dory for the people who love and know God, and whom God knows and loves, uh, that 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 is not always uh, happily ever after, at least not in this life. Uh, But Job, it tends to be, right? Job, God restores this to him. But I think what this does is it challenges us to ask that question. Um, Does the fact that God restores Job's fortunes and and makes him great again, because again, there's plenty of people who go through Job-like situations who never see that. But the question here remains uh, that I think the text invites us to ask. Um... Is Job still true? Is the message of the book still true, even if God hadn't restored him? He did in the case of Job, but what then do we say? Is God unjust if he doesn't restore? And uh, it's an open question, and that's one of the reasons why the scriptures are fun, because it doesn't give you the answer, but it invites you to think about that. And that's the book of Job. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 26. We begin with the parable of the talents. So you have a man going on his journey, and he calls his servants, and he gives them what is his to take care of it. To one of his servants, he gives five talents, and this is an enormous sum of money. Uh, You might recall a a talent um, is... uh, you need to look no further than your footnote, right? A monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a labor. So this is a lot of money. Um, so to one he gives five, to another he gives two, and to another he gives one. And uh, both the ones with five and two talents go and invest them and end up uh, receiving uh, 100% return on investment. By the time the master comes back, the one who has five has gained five and now has ten. The one who was given two has gained two and now has four. But the one who has one was afraid. And what did what did he do with it? Um, he went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. This is a, by the way, a typical thing you do in the absence of banking. Uh, remember the parable about the treasure in the field, how someone buried a treasure in the field and so 
and that's like the kingdom of God, and it's like worth buying the whole field just so you can start digging and find that treasure. Um, this and here the same thing. In order to protect this money, the um, the third servant buries it, uh, and and the uh, the master then comes back and asks for an accounting of what has happened, and uh, both all three of them explain it and course, he's pleased with the first two and tells them, well done, good and faithful servants. Um, but then when he comes to the third, the third offers an excuse, right? He, he says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow, gathering where you gather, scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And the master is grossly disappointed in him. Um, and takes what is his, gives it to the one who has ten, and then uh, right to the one who has, more will be given, but the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. This is the, the idea in the Gospel of Matthew of those who receive Jesus will receive more of the kingdom of God, more of the uh, the treasures, whatever, however you want to define that, um, whereas those who refuse to enter have nothing and even the things that they think they have will be taken from them. Um, and he is cast into this worthless servant, uh, as we see in verse 30, is cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the question is, what do these talents represent? It's not hard to, it's, it's not hard to kind of get the general meaning of the, of the parable. Um, and some would say that this is something like, uh, you know, uh, resources for ministry or something like that, and perhaps it can be, but I just want to keep in mind that the that the failure of the third servant results in being cast out into utter dar- outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This seems to be more personal, um, more an idea of of personal salvation, um, where where the talents are. Uh, what indeed? What did you do with what God has given you? And so anything can that that falls under that category can stand in for the quote unquote talents in this chapter. Um, and the idea would be that Jesus expects us to do something with our salvation, and those who truly have it um, take what God has given to us and invest it for the kingdom of God. And that might be something within your own personal walk with the Lord, your own holiness, or it might be something with how you treat others, right? So it could be something as literal as money. Um, what do you do with what the Lord has given to you? And uh, that God does hold us accountable to that. And and I don't think that this is one of those parables where Jesus magically contradicts the rest of the Bible and is putting forth some kind of works salvation as if that's how you earn your salvation. No, it's just that the that the one who truly belongs in the kingdom of God is is one who produces fruit with what God has given them. So here I think is another parable about producing fruit. And again, the fruit can be inward, it can be outward. I don't think it's saying you need to make a certain number of converts or something like that. No, it's more amorphous than that. The talent can stand for a lot of different things. Finally, we get this parable of the sheep and the goats, which is less of a parable and more of a uh, 
more of a picture of the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so he's talking about the parousia here, and all the angels, okay, this is, this is the final judgment. He will sit on his glorious throne. And then you have all the peoples gathered around him, and, so, and they're separated into two, the sheep and the goats. And um, those who are the sheep, um, Jesus says to them, um, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Again, notice that the full inheritance of the kingdom of God is not something that strict that takes place merely in this life, although it does start here. It, uh, it is something that will take place when the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels and sits on his glorious throne. That's when the ultimate fulfillment of this will be. Um, and the reasoning is, I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we do all those things? I, I don't recall seeing you, Jesus. And uh, Jesus replies, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, the challenging thing about this, um, and it's not that challenging, but it does require us to think, uh, because oftentimes when we, uh, when we look at this, uh, what is it, how is it taken? It's taken that Jesus is evaluating us based on the treatment of the poor or the otherwise disenfranchised, right? And so, this is, um, there's many, many different ministries towards uh, people in need where, you know, we do general things like coat drives, food, or some other kind of e even more, um, I don't say elaborate, but uh, more extensive um, good works towards those who are in need. And oftentimes we will slap on the label, this is ministry to, quote unquote, the least of these. Now, aside from the fact that that's sounds a bit condescending towards the poor. Um, I think that uh, that kind of ignores the way Jesus has been spoke, speaking in the rest of the gospel, right? Like, what has he said about those who are least in the kingdom of God? That those, that they will be first, right? And to whom, and notice that he says, the least of these my brothers. How has Jesus spoken of his brothers in the gospel. Well, every single time in the gospel of Matthew when Jesus speaks about his brothers, he's talking about his disciples. He's talking about those who follow him. And you have a clear example of that in chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside um, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Um, you also have at the very end of Matthew, another good example of this, uh, chapter 28, verse 10, where um, Jesus, who is resurrected, tells some of his women followers, do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Um, and uh, other places where this occurs um, would be, uh, for example, chapter 10, verse 42. Here we don't have 
brothers, but we have the idea of little ones or least of these. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. One of these little ones. That's chapter 10, verse 42. Or chapter 18, verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any of these little ones should perish. So this is a way of speaking to his disciples uh, and of his disciples. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't regard what we, how we care for the poor in general, that, he's, that that's irrelevant to the kingdom of God. And No. Um, obviously, uh, the, the Christian throughout the New Testament is told to do good to everyone and to do what they can to meet people's needs. However, the thing that really marks out a, a, a someone who is a sheep, okay, is that they have special care and special affection and uh, special humanitarian action towards those who are fellow disciples simply because they are fellow disciples. We've again, this is something we've seen elsewhere throughout Matthew that uh, anybody who gives. Uh, aid to a prophet because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. It's because he knows he's a prophet, and that's why he does it, because that's basically the one who honors the one whom I send honors me. Okay, and so this is the idea, the mark of the sheep, is that they have this extraordinary affection for, wait for it, one another. Remember how Jesus speaks in, in the Gospel of John, that if you have love for one another— then you will prove yourself to be my disciples. It's not necessarily love for those outside the church, although, again, that is certainly something we should be doing, but it's the special affection bestowed upon those who are also of the household of faith that really marks one off as the kingdom of uh, as belonging to the kingdom of God. And so we should be careful of those places in Scripture where it talks about doing good to those who are brothers, if you see your brother in need, right? This is not—there is a sense in which we could say all humanity are brothers and sisters, and so we all hold hands and sing kumbaya. But um, in, but, but the, the, the title brother in the New Testament, or sister for that matter, is a—and uh, even father and son often—is referring to the household of faith. It's referring to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So likewise, in this parable, the opposite is true, that where the goats um, are told, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, notice how similar that is to the end of the book of Revelation. For those of you who are familiar with that portion of Scripture, you will be when this year is done. But um, And he basically says, I was hungry, you gave me nothing. Uh uh, I was thirsty, you gave me nothing, and so on and so on. He says the same thing that he said to the goats. And then they say, Lord, when did we see you and not give you stuff? And he says, um, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so it is their refusal to act in the way in which the sheeps did, sheep did that shows them to be no part of the kingdom of God, and um, accordingly they are judged for it. And, um, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice there, the punishment endures as long as the life endures. So a very sobering note, um, but quite a challenge to those of us 
who call upon the name of Jesus, how do we treat one another? How do we treat those who um, who know the Lord and for no other reason we are going to treat them like brothers and sisters? And this is um, this can be challenging, right? Because um, that means we're all getting together with people who might rub us the wrong way and who might... Um, you know, it's it's not like the natural affection that I have for my biological brother or my biological mother. This is an affection brought by the Spirit of God because of our regard for the church and what Christ is doing in this world. To say that these others, some of whom might be very different than me, some of whom might uh, might give me a lot of trouble. Not to say that biological family members don't give us trouble in this world, but but I'm still going to call them brothers because they belong to Christ, and I will treat them well because they belong to Christ. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I very much look forward to, um, uh, to, to being with you tomorrow as we open up the book of Exodus. So until then, keep reading your Bibles. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.